This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. You may remember, or maybe you don't, that um, in the first semester of this year, we were in a series in the book of Romans. Does that sound familiar? I didn't think so, because we weren't. Just thought I'd catch you off guard. We were in a series of the book of Acts, which eventually talks about Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Thessalonica. When we stopped our series in the book of Acts, Paul was about ready to embark on a bunch of missionary journeys. And he was going to establish churches in all those places, those places that we now refer to as Paul's epistles. Those are real places. So as I thought about the series going forward into the second semester, I thought, well, you know, we could go through the book of Acts and finish it out and visit all those places with Paul, or we could actually talk about all the churches that Paul planted and give an overview of what he gave them instructions on. In other words, I had a crazy idea. The crazy idea was basically to preach the rest of the New Testament this semester. The crazy idea was to take one book at a time and make it one sermon. This is the ultimate plan for failure. I'm telling you right now. It is. So critics engage your engines. Why is it the ultimate plan for failure? Because no sermon is comprehensive on any topic, much less a whole book in the Bible. That's the first reason. The second reason is when I make uh, statements about the major themes in any given book, you're going to say, why didn't he mention that one? And there's a good reason, because that one probably was important too, but I can't get to all of them. So critics engage your engines. I know what's coming. There's another reason that it is uh, going to be what they call a sermon fail. Here, here's the reason. Because when we're done with the whole series, I'll be completely unsatisfied with it. And I know that right now. Now, that's a strange way to start a sermon, but I just wanted to get it out there. I've never done this before, and I'm about ready to try it now. And when it's all done, I'm going to think to myself either, well, okay, or that was a disaster. So here we go. Romans today. In one sermon. The title of the sermon. From Freedom to Transformation. Even the title begs a question. Freedom from what? The answer? Freedom from sin. So here's the first point of my sermon. I promise to put them on the screen every week. Point number one. I'm not okay and neither are you. That's what Romans 1 through 3 says to about the middle of chapter 3. As a matter of fact, Paul unveils this 
terrible doctrine that some people call original sin. He, in effect, says what everybody else says the opposite concerning. That is that human nature is deeply sinful to its core. And, as a matter of fact, Paul says, we know the right, but we don't do the right. Because our hearts are not inclined towards God, but naturally inclined away from God. Now, I can't think of a theme that's much more countercultural than that one. Some people actually believe it, but for the most part, that's not what you hear. What you hear is, in effect, you're essentially good. Nurture your good side. You're essentially good, and the only reason you're acting out is because it's society's fault. It's a lack of your education. It's your parents' fault. It's poverty. You want to name all the other ones? You know, that's a a really kind of ancient way of thinking, but it's not a biblical one. Quite frankly, uh, I've done a bit of philosophy, and I think the most powerful philosopher for us today is actually a guy called Rousseau. Not Kant, not Plato, not Aristotle, not Descartes, Rousseau. Because Rousseau basically said this, In effect, if you're an interpreter of Rousseau, you can take issue with me. We'll talk afterwards. He basically, in effect, said this. Human beings are essentially good. And something goes wrong when human beings get together in societies and create structures that move people in the wrong direction. If we would just reconstruct our society and watch ourselves, this essentially good human being, you and me, would be good. Paul would not have agreed. As a matter of fact, I think, in large part, Rousseau was speaking against Paul. Paul would have said concerning humanity, two things. How about this for a paradox? Humanity is stamped with the image of God. There's nothing greater or better than being the image of God. But humanity, which is stamped indelibly with the image of God, is also deeply sinful in its nature. So by nature, this humanity, which is stamped with the image of God, by nature moves away from God. The stamped image in humanity. And the inclination of the human heart is always away from God unless something happens. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. He said, the wrath of God is being poured out on all humanity. Why? Because all humanity is sinful. Why? Because the history of humanity is this. They know what is right and they do not do what is right. And they suppress the knowledge of the right with unrighteous behavior. And the world goes down, down, down. And before long, good is bad and bad is good. The whole world is turned upside down and we begin to celebrate the things that we ought to be ashamed of. That's the nature of humanity, says Paul. Look around you and you say to yourself, kind of sounds like our world. That's nothing. Paul was speaking into the Roman world. 
And whatever you think of our world, it's considerably better. The depth of depravity in the Roman world was beyond where we are. The depth of depravity in the Roman world was legalized in a way we never would consider it to be legalized. It was worse, my friends. It was worse. So Paul, writing to believers at Rome, says, God's wrath's going to be poured out on humanity. Look at the mess around you. And it's almost like he gets inside their heads. And he says, in effect, though not with these words, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, amen, Paul. That's right. The world's gone to hell in a handbasket and everybody can see it. Preach it, Paul. And all of a sudden he says, not so fast. Before you get on your high horse, before you start condemning the world that you see around you, I want to tell you something. There is no one who's righteous. Not even one. By the way, my friends, that includes you, says Paul. All have turned away. They've all become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. Is this dastardly or what? Their mouths are full of cursing. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before them. As a matter of fact, because of this, the wrath of God's coming. And you're under the wrath of God. There's only one proper response to this, says Paul in that same passage. Let every mouth be silent and the whole world be accountable to God. Well, this is going to be a great sermon, isn't it? That's what you're thinking. <laughs> That's how Paul starts out the book of Romans. He starts out by, in effect, saying, I'm not okay, neither are you. The whole world is under the wrath of God. But you know what he says next? About halfway through chapter 3, and then on into chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he says this, the problem is sin, the solution is grace. And you don't understand sin, then you don't understand grace. You can't understand grace unless you understand the depravity of your own nature. Once you realize how utterly depraved you are, then the grace of God is incredible. He puts it in these words, words you've heard before, I'm sure. Words that Rob read at the beginning, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And... This is the most amazing and in the Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ who was a sacrificial atonement for our sins. The world's a mess and so are you. I'm not okay and neither are you. The solution to the sin is grace. Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But through Jesus Christ, there is redemption. There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's newness of life. He goes on to expound this thing by the time he gets to chapter 6. He says, I want you to understand something. 
This is not just a declaration that all of a sudden, because of the grace of God, you no longer are charged with sin. It's more than that. I want to tell you something. It's so much more than that. It's this. Here it is. You've been given the freedom to now walk in Christ. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You've been given freedom to walk with Jesus Christ. I've given you this gift of grace, not just forgiveness, but power to live out from under the slavery of sin. Oh, I just love Romans. I love Paul. That's chapter 6. You know what he does in chapter 7? He says, hold the phone for just a second. I need to get really realistic with you. One, you've got a huge sin problem. Two, you've been given the grace of Jesus Christ so you're no longer condemned for your sin. And three, you're still going to struggle with it. Even though you now have the opportunity for freedom, you're going to struggle with it. Do you remember chapter 7? Have you ever read it? Paul basically says, here's my story. I was called by grace. I've been given freedom in Christ. And even in the midst of that freedom, I continue to struggle with the sin, as the book of Hebrews puts it so eloquently, that so easily besets me. And on one day, I do the good which I want to do. On the other day, I don't do the good which I want to do. And sin is ever present in me. I'm a fitful man. I'm just torn back and forth, back and forth, because I know what's right and I want to do what's right. And thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to 8-1. Because in spite of the turmoil, in spite of the conflict that goes on even inside the one who's been declared righteousness, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I've got some good news for you. You're a sinner. You've been saved by grace. And while you're in this world, let's be realistic, the struggle would continue, but you are not condemned. Sin has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. So live for me. Yeah, sin's a problem and grace is the solution. By the time you get to chapter 8, you know what you begin to realize? God's love is overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. I was a kid in South Florida and I used to go to the beach periodically. And the Atlantic Ocean is very choppy and big waves, especially on those good days. And I used to try to body surf when I was a kid. Never did it very well. But in a weird kind of way, I like something. It wasn't the body surfing. It was swimming towards an enormous wave that would just overwhelm me. You say, that's a negative image. Yeah, I know. I used to get my knees scuffed on the bottom with the sand. I used to come up spitting with water. I thought sometimes I was going to die, but there was something amazing about it. Because the wave was absolutely overpowering. I was absolutely lifeless under the power of this wave. And what I'm saying to you, says Paul, is that God's love is overwhelming. 
It washes over everything. It washes over you. It's so overwhelming that you can't be separated from it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from that love. Not trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or anything in all God's creation. Not height nor depth nor any principalities. Just put in Satan and all his wily schemes. None of it can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The love of God is absolutely overwhelming. So what's the end of the story? Paul says, in light of all that, in light of everything I've said, he puts it this way in chapter 12, verse 1, which we had read just a moment ago. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, in view of everything I've said about sin and grace and the overwhelming love of God, in view of all of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices May I insert to the one who loves you. Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What's the conclusion of the matter? I'm talking about the conclusion of the matter as it relates to the whole book of Romans. Audacious claim. It's this. I'm the problem. It's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, to use the old spiritual standing in the need of prayer. And when I acknowledge my sin and the depth of my depravity, then and only then can I understand grace. I've quoted many times one of my favorite things that comes from G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was asked by a group of writers to put together an essay, and the title of the essay was, What's Wrong with the World Today? G.K. Chesterton wrote back a little note, and it was this, Dear Sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Me. What's wrong with the world? You. You want a definition of sin? There could be many. The human propensity to mess things up. Even when we think we're doing it right. The pathway to grace is acknowledging sin. The depth of our sin. And then, and only then, can we understand grace. In the Christian church, we call that acknowledgement repentance. And sometimes we call it confession. And both are important because repentance usually refers to an initial acknowledgement of sin for the purpose of faith in Christ. But confession routinely refers to a Christian who understands that as this wonderful theologian, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. said, sin is a little bit like taking out the garbage. Confessing your sins is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. Did you love that? 
Confession is important. Because we have to remind ourselves of our sin and remind ourselves of grace. And as a matter of fact, if we had any wits about us at all, we probably would get up every single morning and sing amazing grace over and over and over again. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace by fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. For many... All kinds of pains and tribulations I've been called to go. But this grace that's mine is going to take me home. When we've been there for a thousand years, this is song, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days, those thousands of years, to sing His praise than when we first begun. Why? We're just saying thanks for grace. The more you understand grace, the more powerful it becomes. The final thought is this. Understanding the depth of God's divine love and His plan in Jesus Christ, it produces an eternal perspective in our hearts. An eternal perspective is not something that's natural. You've got a material one. You think about your present world. You think about your present sufferings. You think about... Whatever it is that's in front of you. You think about your own travails of soul. And Paul on one occasion said this in chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings, may I insert whatever they are. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. No matter what we're going through. It doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us and the glory that is eternal. Our days may be 70 or 80 or 90. It's a blip on the screen of humanity. It's not even close to an understanding of eternity. And Paul says, whatever suffering I'm going through right now is not comparable to the eternal glory that I will inherit through Jesus Christ my Lord. My friends, that's an eternal perspective. That changes my reality tomorrow. When I focus on that and allow it to transform me, everything changes. Everything. How does it change? Because you believe it. And you remind yourself of it over and over again. You may say, Bob, you don't understand the depth of my loss. I'm suffering right now deeply. I've lost something or somebody that I'll never have again. I'll never be the same. You don't understand. No, I don't. But whatever you're suffering, it's not worth comparing to the glory that you inherit through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Oh, and in the midst of it, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Your Lord. You say, my circumstances are overwhelming. I just can't cope. Well, I'm not in your circumstances. But I've been to the place that I didn't think I could cope. And in the darkest part of my soul, this reality is still true. Whatever my sufferings, whatever my circumstances... 
They're not worth comparing to the glory of the future. And Jesus Christ will be with me always, even to the end of the age. Because nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You may say, my life's a mess, Pastor. It's just full of sin and mistakes and stupidity, and I've just messed it up so bad, and nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you say, I've given my life to ministry. Maybe I've given my life to ministry just as a parent. I've done everything I can. I've trained my children the way I think they should be trained, and they've walked away. Nothing can separate you or them from the love of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Nothing. And whatever you're suffering, it's not even comparable to the glory that you're going to receive. Wow. Is that good news or what? It's incredible. I got a fantasy. It's not about heaven. I do have a bunch of those, but I got a fantasy that one day Brian Horn is going to have me direct the Hallelujah course on Easter. (laughs) And it's going to be a disaster because my hands are going to be going everywhere because I'm going to be saying, Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. And the basses are going to be singing the tenor part and the altos, the sopranos, and everybody in the congregation is going to be completely mixed up and I'm just going to be exalting in the love of Jesus Christ. What more can you say to this news than Hallelujah, 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 Amen. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be transformed by that truth this week. Let's pray. God, you've been so gracious to us to give us grace. And there's no way we can understand that grace unless we understood our sin. And then like the tide of the Atlantic Ocean and bigger, your love just washes over all our sins. And your grace surrounds us and shakes us like a hurricane, as one of these songs says. Your love is amazing, and nothing can separate us from it. And Lord, remind us that no matter what we're going through, no matter what the heartache, no matter what the fear, no matter what the pain because of our own stupid sin that we've created, all that suffering, Lord, is not even comparable to the glory that we're going to see when we meet you. Lord, that doesn't just make our world better. It makes sense of our world. Because our world's passing and our life is eternal because it's in you. And we thank you for that. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.